This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. The Ontario budget coming down at 4 o'clock this afternoon. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Peter Grafe is with us, political science professor, McMaster University. He is with us now. Peter, thanks so much for the time. As always, we appreciate it. My pleasure. So uh, have we pretty much heard all of that this budget will contain uh, over the past week or so? Oh, I'm sure there'll be a few more things, but uh, yeah, I mean... Uh, what more point, can they give, Peter? Well, uh, you know, a number of these things that are announced that aren't really spending in the current year, and yet they did make this announcement that they're going $8 billion, uh into deficit this year. So, uh, you know, there was probably some other spending on roads and bridges or things like that that uh, are important in certain liberal ridings that will will come out as part of this. So you're thinking there's one more big one before uh, when all this happens at 4 o'clock this afternoon? Maybe not a big one, uh, but certainly, you know, some small things that they'll be trotting ministers out to cut ribbons and announce again in uh, the next few weeks when they can get, uh, you know, do that on the uh, uh, Ontario dime rather than on the Liberal Party dime. Um, so I suspect there'll be, be some aspects uh, like that that we haven't seen yet. But you know, for the most part, I think we've seen a number of the big uh, big ticket items. Uh, they'll be announced today, and then they'll be announced again again until we uh, get into the election period. It's a pretty impressive grocery list, Peter. Uh, can Kathleen Wynne gift her way to a win in the next election? Uh, well, I mean, I think she's really given us a pretty clear choice uh, with respect to Doug Ford. Uh, you know, Doug Ford is saying that we should cut taxes uh, that will be able to afford that uh, either by going into deficit or by cutting back on services. And Kathleen Wynne is saying, no, ultimately, there's a number of challenges we face that we have to uh, do collectively through the state. Uh, and so, you know, these are the sorts of things she's been promising in the past few weeks. I mean, a number of them have been a bit strange. Uh, you know, it seems like a lot of small things in the healthcare system, which, uh, uh, you know, we wouldn't really deserve in a, a special announcement. Uh, you know, I've been getting these special announcements. So there's also been some. I think, stretching of relatively few new budgetary dollars into making it seem like she's trying to solve all the problems in the healthcare sector. So how will these promises resonate with Ontarians? Um, you know, as I mentioned, it's a pretty impressive grocery list, but it's also a government that's been here for 15 years and had that much time to do it, and also a lot of policies that the NDP has been preaching about for decades. So how is this going to play with, uh, with Ontarians? Well, I guess it depends on how cynical people are with respect to this government. Uh, I mean, I think there's a number of people, regardless what Kathleen Wynne says, uh, they aren't going to follow it because they figure it's been 15 years of the uh, Liberal government and it's time for a change. Uh, and the, they, they lack a fundamental trust in the government and they can point to gas plants or e-health or you know, a number of different things that accumulate after 15 years uh, for why they don't trust it. There will be others will say, well, wait a second, if this was such a priority, how come it took 15 years to get here? So even people who might be willing to think about these uh, ideas may be also cynical about, uh, you know, what the real intent is behind them. And, you know, in some cases, like this child care announcement yesterday, right, it's really meant to kick in in 2020, so halfway through the next uh, election mandate and, you know, be phased in slowly. So in some ways, it's an announcement of something that's going to happen in three or four years from now. So, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of cynicism. What it might do, though, is rally her base. And so I think Kathleen Wynne does see this, again, as a two-stage election. The first where she has to steamroll uh, Andrea Horvath and present herself as the alternative to Doug Ford and the only possible alternative to Doug Ford. And to, to get there, I think she needs to be uh, speaking in this language that will appeal to uh, potential NDP liberal vote switchers. Although, I mean, it comes at a, a pretty big strategic cost because it leaves a whole flank open for Doug Ford, which I suspect we'll be hearing today about, can we afford this? Uh, more spending, more waste. Uh, and so she's going to be losing votes on the liberal uh, conservative vote switcher front. You bring up a valid point, Peter. Why does she keep veering left when it appears that, that the NDP don't have a very big share to give her? I mean, you know, she's basically taking the NDP platform. So, and again, it's not like they're... You know, uh, showing everyone up at the polls. Why, why veer that direction and not closer to the center? Yeah, well, I mean, I think she really sees that there's enough softness in the NDP vote that uh, you know there may be enough to federate that. I mean, it yeah. worked for Justin Trudeau uh, in many ways. For uh, Chrétien in 1993, it was a similar similar strategy that worked. And I mean, especially if she wants to win in places like, uh, you know, the 905, the suburbs of Toronto, you know, not the Hamilton 905, the suburbs of Toronto 905, yeah. uh, she really has to push the NDP vote to kind of, you know, 2 to 5%, maybe 7%. 
uh, you know, where, where the, the Liberals have been successful in doing that for, for a long period. If Andrea Horvath gets up to 15 to 20 percent in, in those ridings, uh, then, the, then it's pretty hard for the Liberals to win. So I think, you know, province-wide, maybe, uh, you know, there's not a pile of votes, but in some specific ridings that are important to the Liberals around Toronto, the NDP vote has shown that it will collapse in an anti-conservative vote, and so she has to make sure that she's a person uh, leading that anti-conservative vote rather than Andrea Horvath. Talk about uh, Kathleen Wynne herself. She seems deflated. Um, uh, you, you know, even when she's out uh, in, in doing her thing, uh, she doesn't appear as energized as she was last race. Uh, have you noticed that at all? Uh, well, I haven't been watching too closely, but I mean, I think that would be to be expected. <laughs> you know, yeah. all, all her politics. Almost like she's not convinced. Well, I mean, I, I would have to think if you're Kathleen Wynne, you you brought in a $15 an hour minimum wage. You know, you're pro- you've, you've got this, uh, you know, sort of truncated form of OHIP plus that you've brought in. Uh, you're, you're faced with an NDP, which doesn't seem that present at the moment, uh, uh, you know, and not maybe the best organized uh, that you're running against. And yet your numbers aren't moving. <laughs> so I can imagine, uh, you know, she spent the past year really everything but the kitchen sink. Uh, you know, she is in a position where she still has a shot at winning, but the polls uh, aren't looking good, and it seems like a, the animosity against her uh, means that more or less regardless of what she's presenting, uh, there's very few minds that are, are willing to change and say, okay, maybe uh, we'll give the Liberals another shot. Uh, why would the NDP vote for Win when, in the end, they've got the same sort of platform? Why would the Liberals vote NDP considering the lack of fiscal responsibility with the Liberals? Yeah, so why would, why would these people move? Uh, I mean, I think in some ways it depends on uh, how much people are dyed-in-the-wool partisans mm-hmm. and how much they think of themselves as kind of left-right voters. Uh, I think what we've seen, I mean, in the 1990s, the Conservative Party uh, provincially, but also federally, went from being a kind of middle-of-the-road party to being a somewhat ideologically right-wing party. And it, it meant that the Liberal Party had to decide what they were going to do in response. And in many ways, they said, well, we've got, we've got a, an electoral system that favors two parties. If they're going to go right, we'll be the party of the left, and we'll try and suction up all that support. And it's meant they've been in a kind of constant uh, fight with the NDP about who's going to be the... Uh, who, who are going to play the Democrats to the Conservatives Republicans. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of voters who aren't that partisan and will shift from the NDP to the Liberals, depending, mm-hmm. or the other way, depending on which party looks best placed to, to beat the Conservatives. Have both parties, meaning Liberals and Conservatives, le- left the middle open this election? Yeah, I mean, in a way. Uh, uh, I would say that, you know, Patrick Brown was trying to develop a space which was to Man. say, yeah, we can be more conservative than the, the win Liberals, uh, but Ontarians ultimately want continuity. We, they don't want uh, four years of fights with teachers' unions. They don't want... Uh, us just cutting uh, public sector jobs for the sake of cutting public sector jobs. They actually, people want childcare because they want to go and work and, and they yeah. need, uh, you know, so that, that there's a way to be a modern conservative, but we'll do that differently than Kathleen Wynne's plan. Uh, so, I mean, there was that space, but yeah, I think with, uh, with Doug Ford, uh, he's moved away from that. Maybe he thinks that the, the Wynne liberals are sufficiently toxic that he doesn't have to go there and he'll still get the centrist votes of people who want to change and, and they're willing to... Buy, if you, like you know, that. that's an interesting point, Peter. Have we veered so far left that now the, ap- the, the reaction is just to go the opposite to the right? Yeah, I, w- I wouldn't necessarily paint the, the Wynn uh, government as, you know, terribly, you know, that far left. I mean, I think she was, uh, in the sense that Patrick Brown was centrist, he was trying not to push too far off. Yeah, but I think, I think Patrick Brown came more to the center because Kathleen Brown was more to the left, not the other way around, no? I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, we can maybe see in something like uh, the $15 minimum wage or some of these promises around, say, child care, uh, things that are moving a bit to the left, although, I mean, it's, it's been the, you know, the IMF and the World Bank and the, the OECD who have been saying, well, Canada's spending way less on early childhood care than any other country, so maybe you need mm. to, you know, spend a bit more. I mean, it's... Uh, you know, I, I don't really see uh, the Wynn Liberals as being, you know, that terribly left. Uh, they've been running a pretty tight ship. If you look at where Ontario is spending on things like education and health care, we're among the lower spending provinces. How come we're lower spending on things like those social... It almost seems like she's playing cash, catch up on the social issues that really matter after we've blown all kinds of money in the last 15 years on things other than this. Yeah, or maybe we've just kept our taxes relatively low. 
uh, but we've had expectations uh, of higher. I mean, I, I think part of it is to say, given what the Ontario government brings in in terms of how it's taxing us, uh, we probably can't have the sort of welfare state that a lot of Ontarians expect. So, you know, on the one hand, people are like, wow, I can't look after my eyes and my teeth on the, the income I'm making for my job. We need some kind of, you know, social program. But mm-hmm. uh, ultimately, the taxes we pay are the taxes we pay. I mean, there is, is there a way? But is that always the answer, Peter? Because that's what it is for them. It's just raise taxes. Meanwhile, we're punting bad electricity deals down the road 30 years because they were fiscally mismanaged. So, you know, is it really about taxing so we can have programs or, or, or just taking care of the dang money so it's being used wisely? Yeah, I mean, I think you can go over 15 years and find, you know, gas plants. You can find these electric contracts. Um, uh, you know, there's other ways where they made decisions, such as, you know, the manner in which, you know, they privatized hydro uh, and then gave us a, re- a rebate on our rates, which, you know, again, in a, in a way is taxing us more down the road to tax us less <laughs> at the moment. I mean, there are, you know, but we could add... Like, I don't think people... I don't think that's really, you know, preventing, uh, you know, what's prevented a move to say, yeah, let's let's actually invest in things like early childhood education. Well, I think it all comes down to money, and either we have it or we don't, and during these profitable times, we seem to be broke. Yeah, yeah, well, we do seem to be broke. And, and raising taxes, is that the only answer, or is it not mismanaging our money? Again, I think Canadians would love everything on this grocery list, but how can you do that and then also, you know, uh, make bad deals with electricity files? And, and I, I, you know, I don't think it's the programs. I think it's Ontarians are just convinced that it's been mismanaged. Yeah, I think that's probably part of the story. Right, and that they're they're upset with those things. Uh, on the other hand, I mean things like childcare or uh, you know pharmacare and so on. We're spending that money whether we do it out of our private pocket or whether we do it collectively through the state. Mm. So part of it is you know like do we pay taxes and and have a public childcare program or do we have parents paying privately for childcare? I mean those kids get watched one way or the other. It may be a bit cheaper to do it, you know, by cutting corners in various ways, or people, you know, making do with, you know, something suboptimal. But, uh, you know, we pay for these things one way or the other. So part of it is to say, well, do we get better results and better outcomes if we do it collectively, or do we uh, get better outcomes and better results if we do it privately? Um, and I mean, that's part of uh, why well, I think this is kind of a classic election that we're facing, and that we've got a party of the right saying it'd be best to cut taxes, leave more money in your pocket, you make the decisions. Uh, we've got another government saying, no, if we want to solve these problems, we actually have to, to solve them together. And so uh, as voters, uh, we will have a pretty clear choice come this spring. Uh, do you think we'll be talking about much different tomorrow after we uh, you know, flesh this all out? Uh, I doubt it. Uh, you know, it used to be that budgets were these secret things that were kept out of un- under wraps. Uh, this budget has been uh, pretty clearly uh, scripted. Uh, again, I think we should be a bit upset that our government is doing everything possible to announce its electoral platform as just you know what the government's doing uh, using public money, while our uh, opposition parties don't have the same platform mm. to put forward their ideas. Peter Graham has been with us, professor of political science, at McMaster University. Peter, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show weekdays from noon to three on AM 900 CHML. Pope Francis says he cannot personally apologize to residential school survivors and their families for the role that the church played. Uh, This is a quote from Canadian Press. Uh, The Catholic bishops of Canada have been in dialogue with the Pope and the Holy See concerning the legacy of suffering that you have experienced. The Holy Father is aware of the findings of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which he takes seriously. As far as a call to action is concerned, after careful consideration, the request and extensive dialogue with the bishops of Canada. He felt he could not uh, personally respond. Uh, the chief, uh, the Assembly of First Nations National Chief Harry Bellegarde said, First Nations agreed that acts of healing and reconciliation are important and we must pursue them and build on them. We continue to urge Pope Francis to come to these lands, our homelands, to meet with First Nations peoples and survivors of the residential school system. Hearing an apology directly from Pope Francis would be an important act of healing and reconciliation, much like his apology delivered to the Indigenous peoples of the Americas in 2015. I have read the letter from the Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishops and will be writing Pope Francis directly to seek a meeting to discuss these and other matters which are of great importance to First Nations. Let's bring in Emma Anderson, a professor, uh, Department of Classics and Religious Studies, University of Ottawa, and is with us now. Emma, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. So what was the role the Church played in residential schools? 
Well, it was really a partnership. And when we think about residential schools, most of us think about the 19th century um, as being the kind of heyday of residential schools. But, of course, it's important to remember that they went all the way up in, in some provinces to the 1980s, maybe even the 1990s. Uh, they also started earlier than people uh, thought. I wrote a book, um, Betrayal of Faith, which was actually about one of the first residential school uh, children, but it wasn't here. It was over in France. Uh, so it's a long history going all the way back to the really the dawn of, uh, of uh, the founding of Quebec, presence of Samuel de Champlain, the Recollet missionaries. It's a long history, and it's often quite a gruesome one. So whose responsibility was it for the mandate of this school, these schools? Was it uh, dictated through the government, then passed down to the church? How did it that work? It was very much a, a shared responsibility. The government was in charge, uh, but the, it was almost like they outsourced the running of the schools to right. a range of different churches, many of which have already um, uh, apologized for their role uh, Stephen Harper, of course, apologized on behalf of the Canadian government. The United Church uh, apologized several um, decades ago. The Catholic Church has not apologized as a formal unit. Uh, individual religious communities, such as uh, the University of Ottawa's own Oblate Fathers, they were our founders before we were secularized back in the 1960s, have apologized for their role, but there has been no official uh, apology from the very head of the Catholic Church, being, of course, Pope Francis himself. Considering the, the Catholic Church ran two-thirds of the schools, the majority of the schools, and the others have apologized, why not here? Why not the Pope, especially if the Prime Minister has? I don't know the answer to that. Um, I can only speculate on what Pope Francis' um, thinking might be on this. It could be that he feels that uh, because he did an overall apology to First Nations people, of the Americas back in 2015, that that somehow covered uh, the issue of residential schools. But I think we have to ask ourselves, what are, what are the purposes of an apology? And I think one reason is, you know, to make people feel uh, better. But I think perhaps the more profound one is to show that an institution or a person is aware that they did something wrong. Where I'd love to see um, a lot of the emphasis move in our discussion about residential schools is from the horrific physical and sexual abuse to the very um, idea of the schools in the first place, which really was uh, to change fundamentally the ways of thinking and being that Aboriginal people had in this country. It, the idea was basically to remake Native people in a kind of a white, Eurocentric Christian image. And that, even if no one ever got hurt, in a more physical or in a more mm. sexual way, would have been uh, a, a, not a good idea anyway. You know, I, I don't see a lot of wrestling with the spiritual colonialism that was represented by these residents. Will schools. we ever understand that, considering it was just a different time and, and people just thought differently then? I mean, you know, at the end of the day, is, is, did they think they were helping? It Sometimes it seems as if that that was the idea, but of course a lot of the even the most well-meaning uh, people were working on faulty understandings. Yeah. One of the biggest crises that sort of founded uh, a lot of people's interest in, in residential schools was this idea that um, in, in uh, the United States it was called Manifest Destiny. It was this idea that uh, white culture, civilization, and religion was kind of destined to spread across the North American continent. Mm -hmm. And there were different kinds of Manifest Destiny, uh, but one of them kind of had this idea that Native people had sort of had their day and they needed to either adapt and um, acculturate to white uh, Christian civilization, mm -hmm. or they were going to somehow just disappear yeah. or go extinct. And residential schools were an attempt to try to help Native people to assimilate rather than vanish. Yeah. But even the premise of that there's only two ways that, that cultures can cope with modernity, one being to assimilate and the other being to basically die, uh, the whole premise is, is faulty. Haven't we already learned from that, though? I mean, it's been an awfully long time. We've, haven't we evolved quite a bit from that? Yeah, I would say so. How, how much more can we explain, Emma, other than, you know, that's the way they thought back then. They thought they were helping. I mean, what more can we learn from it? Well, I think that 
if we look at the uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commis- uh, Committee's um, call for action, there's a number of different things that Indigenous uh, Canadians are challenging non-Indigenous Canadians to do. One of them is to take a good, strong look at history mm. and to say, look, when there's things that are out of date and that no longer represent how people uh, think or want to think, we need to repudiate these. We need to publicly say this wasn't a good idea, and I think that's uh, what largely these these apologies are supposed to be. Do you think we've about. got? Do you think we've got that message, Emma? Do you think we understand that now? Well, I don't know because there's other things that go even deeper, um, like the terra nullius and the doctrine of discovery. These are things that are still officially on the books, hmm. even though modern people would in no way, shape, or form uh, believe them. The doctrine of discovery, it's like the whole like Columbus uh, document that if you find un, uh, that you find habited parts of the world where people don't believe in Jesus, you can just go ahead and take their land. Yeah. Nobody today would say that's fair. And Isn't yet, that proof, though, that we've evolved out of that? I don't know. Yeah, of course. I mean, or am I being naive here? No, in a sense, I think you're right. But, you know, I would have thought you were more right before I wrote my second book. I thought that, um, quite naively probably, if I was going to be writing a book that went from the 17th century to the present, I would see progress in terms of people's attitudes and relationships between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Canadians. Mm -hmm. And what I found, actually, is that in some ways, early 20th century Canadians were more racist against Native people than were even people like Jean de Brébeuf and Mm. other 17th century missionaries. Mm. Uh, Why doesn't the Catholic Church just, you know, do what the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Report uh, uh, suggests if it would make so many people happy and be a step forward? You got me. The only thing I can um, perhaps suggest is that perhaps Pope Francis is just trying to avoid for right now, the question of child sexual abuse. It certainly got him in trouble in his travel, recent travels in uh, South America, uh, where he was really seen as having st- standing up for uh, a figure very strongly associated with a known pedophile and sexual abuser. could be that Pope Francis just doesn't want to have to deal with something that got him into quite a lot of hot water just a month or six weeks ago. But he seems to be the sort of pope that, and right from the beginning, that was like that, that was, that was trying to right a lot of wrongs. I think you're right. And I, I think one of the things that's been sad as we come just to the, uh, the fifth anniversary of his papacy is that there's a lot of people who did believe in him in the beginning. Um, I can't remember at the top of my, uh, off the top of my head. I think it's Mary Robinson. She was um, a sexual abuse survivor, uh, clergy sexual assault from Ireland. She was the only uh, layperson, ordinary Catholic, to be on the commission studying um, clergy sexual abuse. And she actually resigned out of frustration that not enough was being done quickly enough. So I think, unfortunately, people are starting to think, what is it with Pope Francis? How come he doesn't get the seriousness of uh, the impact that, that sexual and physical abuse, but I would also add perhaps spiritual abuse, has on people. Why can't he keep pick up on this? Uh, do you think this is a legal issue? Do you think it's a responsibility, people looking for restitution? That could be part of the Vatican's thinking, but um, it's one of those things where I think if the Church was willing to put its quite considerable financial and economic resources on the line in the service of trying to uh, atone for centuries of abuse, not just, of course, here in Canada, but also uh, in Ireland. Really, across the Catholic world, there have been instances of uh, this kind of pedophilia. I think it would really maybe draw a lot of people's uh, attention and sympathy. I think the fact that the Church seems to be kind of holing up once again and doing a sort of fortress mentality uh, just turns people off. They think if they were really sorry, then they wouldn't be trying to hide them from uh, legal repercussions and economic repercussions. And you were talking about how, you know, despite this being an awfully long time ago, perhaps we still haven't moved forward with our prejudices. Wouldn't this help that? I I think it would. I I really don't see a downside with the Pope uh, coming out to apologize, uh, because it would really, I think, for some people, help to turn the page to hear it 
from the biggest guy, to hear it from, uh, as you said, uh, a collaborator that did run the majority of residential schools across Canada. That's not to say that the Anglican Church and the United Church didn't play their role, Mm -hmm. but they've kind of uh, put it behind them by saying, you know, this was not a good idea. And it wasn't even, um, in, in many ways, consistent with Christian outreach. You know, many uh, of these these institutions have said, if we had it to do again, it would have been more in the spirit of Christian charity mm. uh, to never have any any institutions like this. What about the fact that these other religions have spoke out against this? Uh, it, would there be pressure from them to the Pope to, to, to say something since they have, or, or would they just keep out of that? Uh, I don't know about that. I don't know how if the if Pope Francis would sort of feel uh, sort of the, the obligated the because the others have apologized. Yeah, I think it's more likely to be internal pressure from more progressive elements within the Catholic Church. Like I was saying, uh, the Oblates mm-hmm. and other orders have said this was a bad idea. But they can't speak for the whole church. They can only speak for their own orders. But how do you explain when, uh, you know, the apologizes to the Irish victims uh, in 2010 and then uh, 2015 uh, in Bolivia to the indigenous peoples? How do you explain some and not the others? This is what I find puzzling, is that it seems like if you're going to suggest that it's okay to air the church's dirty laundry and talk about not just when the church was right, because after all, what is canonization and making saints if not saying, here are lives of heroic sanctity? If the church can, uh, you know, celebrate itself and celebrate saints, why can't it also own up when things haven't been going right? I think um, maybe Pope Francis is just sick of it. Or maybe he feels like it's enough already and people need to to get over it. But I think what he doesn't realize is that when it's not addressed to you personally, there is still that sense of, uh, of wanting that personal connection. And he has been the Pope of compassion and the Pope of connection. Yeah, that, think... that seems to be his character. That, 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 that's where this was all going when, when he started his, his uh, papacy. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And so it seems like there's been a slight change in sort of mood or tenor that, as I was saying earlier, I think I noticed a lot with his South African tour. When he was criticized fulsomely, including by other cardinals and in the press, he didn't respond well. Um, Pope Francis can be very, very uh, kind of gentle and kind and funny Mm -hmm. and offbeat, but he doesn't also seem to like being criticized too much. Why would he be criticized for these moves? Of not apologizing? Mm-hmm. I think it just because um, of much the same sort of reason that we were suggesting. What a lot of the Pope, uh, Pope's kind of brand, if I can use that word, has been being a more humane and merciful and compassionate face of the Catholic Church than what we're used to seeing. Uh, not to say that uh, Pope Benedict or Pope John Paul II weren't compassionate in their own way, mm-hmm. but in many cases they, t- they did emphasize uh, issues that kind of put a bit of an odds between conservative and liberal elements within the Catholic Church, and I think this Pope has tried to sort of smooth over some of those differences, as well as really reposition what the Church is supposed to care about in 2018. His big priorities, of course, have been global poverty, immigration, and also the environment, instead of stuff like homosexuality and abortion, which you saw in the previous two papacies. Hmm, interesting. Um, uh, the AFN National Chief Harry Bellegarde says that he's going to uh, write the Pope and, and hope for at least a visit. Uh, the Pope ha- it appears to be open for that. Will that change things, do you think? It's always possible. One thing that I've noticed about with this Pope is he tends to respond well to personal connections. I know um, a lot of his sort of softening of the Church's language about homosexuality has been because he has personal friends that he knew in Argentina uh, who are gay, who've played a really major role in his spirituality and his his public life. So maybe this will be uh, another example of just a person-to-person kind of exchange that will make the Pope see anew how hurtful this is still for some people, how painful it is, and how, in a sense, how easy it would be for him to intervene in a way that might 
uh, save some of the suffering or anger that people are feeling. If it's just, and again, maybe I'm, I'm oversimplifying this, but if it's a few words that could make so many so happy, you, you wonder why it's not being done. Uh, yeah. a, a listener writes, as a Catholic born and raised, I was taught the single most important uh, tenet of our faith was taking responsibility for wrongs we have done and those we've hurt by accepting our culpability and making uh, repair, uh, repair, repariation by seeking forgiveness. How absolutely unacceptable that the church of my birth cannot practice what they preach. How is this going to be received by Canadian Catholics? I think it's. I think there's going to be a lot of people, um, perhaps no one, expressing it quite as eloquently as your as your listener. That was beautifully put. I think that's going to be a common reaction. Is you know where's the where's the sense of uh, of compassion for suffering, but more importantly too, where's the sense of outrage at injustice? This this pope has really seen uh, sort of presented himself as someone who likes to fight for the underdog, mm-hmm. who likes to take the place of people who are at the lowest rungs of society, who are often ignored, forgotten, ridiculed uh, by others and put them at the center of his spiritual life. Why can't he then do that with the indigenous peoples of Canada, who uh, his church was directly responsible in some cases for harming? Was there any downfall with the other religious organizations admitting this? I don't think so, because I think it's allowed them to have a fresh start um, in their relationships with Aboriginal people, in the same way that we often do in our personal relationships. Like if you and I get into a beef, and I am like wildly insensitive to you or do something really hurtful, probably you're not going to want to spend a lot of time with me or have much of a relationship with me until I not only say I'm sorry to you, but also show that I understand what I did wrong in the first place. Mm. I think that's, that's what's so necessary, is that if I just say, uh, you know, oh, Scott, if you got mad from something I did, then, well, I'm really sorry. That is not a full apology because it doesn't suggest any kind of insight or learning curve about what I've done. What you need to do is be as specific as possible. What did I do wrong? Was I arrogant? Was I insensitive? Was I a big mouth? Did I, did I somehow uh, reveal something to someone I wasn't supposed to have? Like, you need to be as clear as possible about what you did why it was bad, and how you're not going to do it in the future. This We've been talking about this for an awfully long time. Why do you think we're getting this response now? And it's not like they haven't had time to investigate all of these issues and, 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 and discover what an important issue this is for Canadians. I, I don't have an answer to that. It seems like um, you're right. I mean, it's not that it hasn't been raised. Mm-hmm. Prime Minister uh, Justin Trudeau raised it himself when he went to the Vatican. Mm-hmm. It's clear that it's one of the big priorities that we've had. Uh, indigenous leaders have also brought it up. I mean, it's in the um, the Truth and Reconciliation thing, among many other suggestions. One is that the the Pope should take responsibility for this historical injustice and and all the different aspects. You know, the physical abuse and sexual abuse certainly, but also the very idea, uh, the hubris in a way that Catholics, Protestants. Uh, you know, European Canadians thought that we could come to this country and basically start a revolution in the economic, political, social, and religious lives of Native people. It's it's an act of hubris uh, that needs to be atoned for, and it doesn't seem as if Pope Francis is, is willing to do that at this point. Emma Anderson has been with us, Professor, Department of Classics and Religious Studies, University of Ottawa. Fascinating discussion, Emma. Thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, no. Thank you for having me. It was fairly fun. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. So in front of me, I remember my, uh, my mom and my sisters used to buy Cosmo, Cosmopolitan Magazine. And I remember as a young kid, you know, you'd flip through it because every so often you saw... I don't know. Something that a little boy wasn't supposed to see. Even better than the Sears catalog, if you know what I mean. But still, you know, pretty tame. But I'm looking at this copy now. Rediscover sex with your husband. Uh, The last frontier of eroticism. One women's dynamic story. Uh, Super skiing. How a girl can move up in the world on the downhill slope. You can't lose safely 10 pounds in 10 days. So they got the diet thing. Is it true what they say about truck drivers? 
What happens when you answer an ad for a man? How to be loved and belong to someone? The trade secrets of the sexiest ladies in history. Wow, there you go. That, that's just some of the things it says on the front of the Cosmopolitan issue. Uh, this might be from uh, November of 1974, though. <laughs> I can tell just by the hair. So this started, I guess, as um, something that was uh, more of a, I guess, a, 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 a magazine that, that touched on politics and culture and, and that sort of thing, and then slowly moved over. Uh, into the uh, the women's sphere and and magazines. I mean, they're all competing right now for for eyes, just like all media is. Uh, but in uh, the reason I'm reading all of this is Walmart has decided to remove Cosmopolitan from their checkout aisles after they uh, had heard concerns in regard to the content. As I'm sure I'm just mentioning to you, the group that raised the concerns said the magazine is comparable to pornography. Wow. Uh, but the thing is, you can still buy it at Walmart. It's just not at the checkout. It's over in the magazine section. Well, what difference does that make? Uh, let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert principal at Alyssa Freeman PR. She is with us now. Alyssa, are, have you ever read The Cosmo? Sure, I have. <laughs> Do you have I any Cosmo magazines in your home right now? A number of those topics that you just mentioned. So yeah. there. There you go. Is this porn? Is it porn? No. And quite frankly, I'll make my own decisions on what I think that I should buy and I should not buy. So, so I'm, I'm wh- a little... Why, I, make, know, why, make this, why make this fuss and then still sell it but just not at the checkout? What difference does it make if it's sitting there at the checkout or if you have to actually go over to the magazine department to pick it up? Well, either you're half in or you're half out, right? So yeah. in, and in this case, it, it's like doing the hokey pokey. I've got my right foot in. I got my left foot out. So uh, I'm, I'm going to make. I'm, we're going to take a stand, a sort of stand. Actually, we're not. It's not really a stand, Scott. We're sort of kind of sitting while we're doing it. Yeah. And honestly, this is just bending to a pressure group. You know, when they say that cosmopolitan um, exploits women, and you know, they talk about subjects of sexuality. Really? Well, I think that some of those subjects should be talked about. Well, how can you say that when it's geared towards women? So wouldn't well, what this... about men's health? You ever yeah, look at yeah, a copy same of thing. Men's Health yeah, Club? Yeah, it's no different, yeah. All right, how to go all night long. <laughs> but how can you... I don't you... think they're talking about eating. Yeah. <laughs> but again, it's not like it's a magazine that... Uh, Cosmo's a magazine with all this content in it that's targeting towards men. They're targeting it towards women. Well, I think it's a, it's a magazine by women for women. Yeah. And there are women who want to read that stuff. And Cosmopolitan's been around a long time, and they've always pushed that edge. I don't need some puritanicals telling me that I shouldn't know about different forms of sex and where and when I, I should, could be able to do that. And, and not only that, I mean, really, when I buy my magazines at Walmart, yeah, you do make those impulse purchases at the checkout, but they've got a whole section, a whole slew of magazines. You know, they've got Playboy, they've got this, they've got that. So... Listen, there are some people who would think that they look at a knitting magazine and get all excited. What? Uh, oh, my mom would. Um, mm-hmm. What? Yarn uh, porn. <laughs> Very good. And Luke was was worried you wouldn't have enough to talk about. <laughs> so um, uh, I forgot what I was going to say now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what about the Me Too movement? Uh, has this changed the way we look at these magazines? So you know, when you look at the Me Too movement, we're starting to see all the different extremes pop up. So this is one extreme of that movement. So they're leveraging that, thinking that women don't want to, um, but, you know, when they're all suffering all these either sexual objectification or unwanted touching. But, and so now that's moving into regulating what we should and should not read. This is not hate literature. Cosmopolitan is not hate literature. It is literature about exploring a woman's sexuality. If you don't want to read it, don't buy it. How is it any more offensive than standing next to a National Enquirer? Why well, read the National Enquirer at the checkout spot? <laughs> That's because you're into the horoscopes. Yeah, well, you want to know something? Anybody in pop culture knows that the National Enquirer has the best sources in the business, hmm. not to mention they're in Trump's pocket right now. But they do have the best sources in the business, and while there is some you know, very fantastical stuff that you'll read in there, you know, 
so-and-so saw aliens. You know, when they start reporting on things, then you know that six to eight months later, it's all going to come to fruition. So Walmart is answering the call to uh, special interest groups that are demanding this. Uh, How are these special interest groups not upset with Trump's shenanigans? Well, there is the great dichotomy, honestly. Here you have a president who feels that it's okay to cheat on his wife, let alone when his wife just gave birth, but we shouldn't be talking about women's sexuality uh, at the checkout. And I think the difference is this. The way it's been explained to me, Scott, is that evangelicals and perhaps far-right believe that Trump can still be saved and learn from his mistakes. So by conversely, when you start putting out um, editorial about a woman's sexuality, that is only trying to stir the pot in, in order to engage with ideas of the devil. So that's how that's been explained to me. And that's where it doesn't make sense, but that's the split. How, with the Me Too movement and such, are we going to see a shift in these sorts of magazines? Obviously, we know what Playboy is going through, but Cosmo seems to be doing okay, is it not? Well, I believe so, but listen, you know, porn, like what is the biggest, if you, if you wanted to know what people search the most on, yeah. on the World Wide Web, it's porn. Yeah. What sells the most? Porn. So you can relegate or delist, as they say in the magazine world, Cosmo, to the back shelves at Walmart. But Cosmo still has a website. Mm. And if you don't want to buy it at the checkout, they'll, you'll just go on the website. In fact, this could work against that was my ne- strategy. Th- this was my next question. Is this the best news that Cosmo could ever get? You know, honestly, it could be. And, you know, curiosity, it'll pique people's curiosity. If you haven't picked up a Cosmo in 20 years, yeah. I have to admit I haven't picked up a Cosmo. But, you know, I'll certainly go look at it now. Maybe I'll just buy one out of spite. Uh, Morality and Media said it places women's value primarily on their ability to sexually satisfy a man and therefore plays into the same culture where men view and treat women as inanimate objects. Further, Cosmo targets young girls by placing former Disney stars on its cover, despite the enclosed sexual, uh, sexual erotic articles which describe risky sexual acts like public intoxicated or anal sex in detail. Customers should not be forced to be exposed to this content when they're trying to check out at a store. You know, the one thing I agree with in that whole laundry list is that when you start putting Disney store, uh, yeah. stars on, it does start to skew a younger age bracket. And for me, Cosmo was always for a woman in their 20s. Wasn't there a younger version of Cosmo? There was Teen Cosmo. Yeah. Actually, it was Teen Vogue. I don't know if it was Teen Cosmo or not. I may be wrong, Cos- yeah. But, Maybe it was um, Teen Beat. Oh, that's way before everybody's time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, when you do put Disney stars on and to lure a younger demographic in order to grow up with your magazine, I do have a problem with that. Where do, where do you draw that line, though? Well, you know, you don't put on somebody who's on Nickelodeon on Cosmo. Right. You don't put somebody who's on a very, like, specifically younger-skewed uh, family channel or Disney channel show on Cosmo. So I think that they do need to draw a line. And perhaps, you know, with this type of movement and with this type of this recent, um, you know, this recent action, they too will take a look at it and go, okay, it's okay for us to talk about women's sexuality when we feel that, you know, they've had enough experience or enough education. So, you know, know, let's keep it to women in their 20s. But skewing uh, girls younger than that to be on the cover is uh, maybe is not the way we want to go. Do you think this is uh, extreme religion jumping on the Me Too movement as a way, as a means, as a vehicle to suppress the sort of material they don't like? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, that whole religious movement is very well organized. And they're very well organized within the Republican Party. So when you get a lot of these far-right values, it's because they've played it very smartly and they have infiltrated every community. And I say infiltrated because it is sort of insidious, but, you know, they spread out into every community, county around the United States, growing and um, getting people to join their movement in a, in a, uh, as, a, as a means of support. So they've done a great job with that. Right now, they're just sort of entering a little bit of a different avenue here. All right, let's move on. I don't know if you saw this the other night, but speaking of times have changed, I'm sitting watching Stephen Colbert the other night, Sean Penn's on, 
who, by the way, looks like 15 years older than he actually is. Oh, I know. Oh, my God. I couldn't believe it when he said he it's, was 57. It's, it's he, looks like he's, he looks like he's 77. I know. He really does. He a hard life. Oh, my God, is he yeah. ever. Uh, anyway, so he's, he's sitting there and he's chatting with Stephen Colbert. He obviously looks a little uncomfortable. He's not a real big interview guy. And then as he's chatting, he's got a, a leather bomber jacket on and he slowly starts reaching into one pocket. And he's taking forever to bring his pack of smokes out. And I'm thinking, well, long enough for me to say, he's going to smoke, isn't he? <laughs> and sure enough, he pulls and then, you know, pulls out the package, then then slants over to the other side where he digs back into the left pocket to see if he, and then finds a lighter in the other one. And, and Colbert's just kind of looking at him. And as if he was standing on a street corner, he just pulls out a button, sparks it up. And, uh, you know, I'm sure everyone's reaction was, wow, haven't seen that in a long time, if you're old enough to remember. How come he gets to do it and no one else does? Well, you know, here's the thing. When I went on Twitter to get reaction on this, because I admit I didn't see it live, but, you know, three seconds on a computer and you can sort of get That's the gist of things. Yep. Um, smoking has become such a... Uh, a terrible thing in our society that and and people just don't do it in the numbers that they that they used to. I think you know smoking is down to about twenty two percent of the population here in our country. So when you when you talk about how bad smoking is and how it's going to kill you and how dastardly the um, the tobacco industry has been, we all come with a preconceived set of ideas of how we feel about smoking and maybe even how we feel about people who do smoke. So here we are. We've had all this education. We've been inundated with um, you know, <laughs> yeah. social health promotion messages. And he pulls out a butt. And then he pulls out a butt. <laughs> and it would be the same as if he dropped his drawers. Yeah, yeah. And people were, first of all, he was on Ambien. So he's, he mentioned that in the yes. interview. So yeah. he said he was on the Ambien train, meaning that he was a little bit out of it to begin with. So, you know, smoking for Sean I don't Penn... See how th- I don't see how that's anything out of the ordinary for Sean Penn. Well, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't think, I don't think anybody would have batted an eye there. Well, no, but smoking for Sean Penn is, you know, it's like a security blanket. Sure. So if he's feeling a little bit out of sorts and he's still sort of riding the last wave of an Ambien, if you've ever taken an Ambien on a, a long flight, you better make sure it's a long flight because yeah. you, you won't remember what goes yeah. on during the day. So I remember he Rob takes out a butt and yep. people freak. And you know, the reaction was half is he smoking? Yeah. Like with incredulity, and half I think this guy is really out of it and wasted and yeah. this is worrisome to even see this on TV. I don't know if he was out of control. I think he was well aware of what he was doing. Oh, I think he was too. But, but you know, and I'm not saying he was out of control, but he was obviously not all there. I remember uh, back in the old days, uh, Robert Blake, the actor, used to go on uh, Johnny Carson and always pull out a cigarette and never light it for the same right. reason. But he never lit it. Uh, is this? Do we just accept uh, Sean Penn as the tough guy? And yeah, he can do that. Or does this just? Um, does this just show the younger people that if you want to be disrespectful, you can? Well, I think there's a couple of things at play here. First of all, Sean Penn has always played sort of like anti-establishment yeah. characters. Yep. And Sean Penn himself is a bit anti-establishment. This is the guy who went down and spoke with El Chapo. Yeah. So he's never been one to ride the mainstream, number one. So when he does something that is anti-establishment or goes against the grain, it's not that shocking because it really does dovetail with part of his persona. Yeah. You it's know, the character. That being said... Mm-hmm. You know, smoking, first of all, it's not like people are all going to all of a sudden light up because Sean Penn is. No. And if you take a look at his, his sort of state on the show... Yeah, it may it, turn it everybody off. <laughs> ...anything that you'd want to emulate at all. Yeah. And it was just one of those things that 40 years ago, somebody would have taken out a cigarette. Listen, they all used to smoke on talk shows. Oh, yeah. Somebody used to take out a cigarette and, you know, whatever. Dean Martin used to take out a cigarette. Nobody batted an eyelash. And a drink. Now somebody takes... A, yes. Yeah. And now somebody takes out a cigarette and it's akin to pulling your gun. Yeah. Do you think this is all part of the character? Do you think he did it intentionally? I'm just going to go in there and smoke, whether it's, you know, a nervous habit or not. Um, do I think it was premeditated? No. But do, do I think that maybe he was kind of losing his sense of self and, 
you know, his Ambien was wearing off. And he said to hell with it. He was having a, a bit of a, maybe he was getting a little bit panicky. And for him, as he mentioned in the article, he grew up around his parents who smoked and he finds it very comforting. So it was kind of very, very odd to say, but it was a, it was for Sean Penn, a self-soothing technique. Now, Colbert's uh, been on many times and all of a sudden he'll pull a bottle of booze out from underneath the desk. He'll pull everybody a drink and they'll wolf it down. Why is that funny, this not? That's a really good question. I think people look at smoking as polarizing and drinking is not. You know, how many times are you at a party and let's say you don't want to drink and or you drink a little? People notice it and they think they you're pregnant. Out. <laughs> so drinking is seen as, is, is, I think, is often seen as something that um, pulls people together. It doesn't matter what walk of life you are in. If you, you like to drink and you like to get a bit of a buzz, mm. that is sort of a great common denominator. Whereas smoking is not. You know, how many times do you run out of your building because there's an overhang and people can smoke? Mm-hmm. Or there's no overhang and they are allowed to smoke within 20 feet or 9 feet of the building. It's, it's awful. Mm. And even today when I was running out and I had to run past somebody, I, you know, I held my breath. Yeah. So, you know, and that's the difference. And that is basically the difference. One is more polarizing than the other. All right. I can't let you go without asking you one quick political question in regard to uh, Premier Wynne. Uh, budget coming down today, although we pretty much know everything that's in it. It's a huge shopping list. Uh, even to me, she seems deflated. Are you getting that sense? Well, you know, it's almost like they're putting in a room and saying, okay, well, what else for free can we give? Yeah. You know, we've got free dental, free, you know, prescriptions if you're over 65. I'm thinking a free house. If you're under 25. I want a free house and electric car in well, the driveway. you know, exactly. Free daycare. Um, you know, where is all this money coming from? You know, I, I have talked about this, uh, and I say that people pay attention to the things that apply to them. So when you hear about free daycare, listen, I could have used it when my daughter was yeah, young. She's absolutely. Now, you know, that ship has sailed. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you're looking at different segments of society. So what the liberals have effectively done is absolutely annihilate the NDP um, and even co-opted their dental plan mm. within their, their whole free package of stuff. Uh, you know, bankrupt, you know, build up the debt that our grandchildren will still be paying off. You know, I just hope that people can see through it and that this is, you know, how many Hail Marys can you really throw? Yeah. I don't know if there's been any polling, you know, since. I think the pollsters are all waiting until the budget comes out. Mm -hmm. And then in the next few days, we'll see some numbers about where she stands. But be that as it may, whether you get free daycare or not, you know, when Doug Ford goes uh, stumping around the province, they're going to say to him, are you going to give me free daycare? Because all you want to do is cut, cut, cut. So his messaging really has to be very carefully crafted. Because if he says, I don't want to give you free daycare, where are we going to get the money for that? Well, I'm going to vote for the person who does. So, you know, by putting some of these stakes in the ground, they become sometimes wedge issues for the uh, opposition. And it'll be interesting to see how he handles that, because we really haven't seen a Doug Ford five-point plan yet. No, he's kept it pretty simple. It'll be interesting once it expands a bit. Yeah. Alyssa Freeman is with us, PR and pop culture expert, principal at Alyssa Freeman PR. Alyssa, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.